Welcome to Served Neat, hosted by your girl, Jen Hartman. I'm the CEO of Neat, a boutique PR and marketing agency based out of Louisville, Kentucky. I launched Neat in 2019 with just $3,000 in my bank account. Since then, I've had the opportunity to work with hundreds of emerging brands and Fortune 500 empires. I believe that marketing and PR should be served neat, just like your favorite bourbon. On this podcast, you'll hear about the latest and greatest growth strategies, the ups and the downs of entrepreneurship, and so much more. Pour yourself a glass of your favorite bourbon because it's time to dive in to this week's episode. Hey guys, what's up? Welcome back to another episode of Served Neat. In today's episode, I had the opportunity to chat with Michaela Alaka from Break Your Budget. Fun fact for you, she's actually my former personal financial coach and she is just a wealth of knowledge. So I'm really excited to share this conversation with you. Michaela Alaka is a financial analyst and entrepreneur specializing in Gen Z and millennial money management. She focuses on instilling sustainable and intentional spending, saving, and budgeting practices into your life so you can reach your six-figure savings goals. With hundreds of thousands of followers on TikTok and her own set of signature online courses, Michaela has successfully built a platform that speaks directly to the growing number of young people who are ready to take their financial power back. Michaela has partnered with brands like Refinery29, Truebill, H&R Block, Fundrise, Credit Sesame, and even Stash. You can find Michaela at Break Your Budget on social media and breakyourbudget.com. In today's episode, you'll hear Michaela share insights from her own personal finance journey and how her personal finance views have changed over time, money advice for founders, and the behind the scenes of writing her first book. All right, let's dive in. Hey, Michaela, I am so excited to have you here. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. Of course. Thank you for having me on. I'm super excited. Yes. All right. Let's just dive right in. Can you give us an overview of your personal finance journey? Absolutely. So I feel like I've had quite the journey, I guess. So we'll start from the beginning. So I graduated college in 2017 and I was a finance major. I've always been interested in money. It's always been something even growing up. My mom would give me every year for Christmas a different piggy bank or something where I would hoard my allowance. So I majored in finance in college, just again, interest alignment and graduated with a job in the financial industry. And it was during that time where I was transitioning from being a college student, a full-fledged functioning adult in society. I had been moving out of my parents' house and into my own apartment with a roommate in Boston. And once I moved out, I realized that while Once you start paying bills, they literally never stop. So it was at that time that I'm like, okay, I should probably figure out my budget and have a budget in general. Early on though, those first two, I would say two to three years out of school, I was conscious about how I was spending money probably in a more detrimental way, just because I really focused on spending as little money as possible. And I had a budget, but it wasn't a comprehensive budget. I would track my spending in the notes app on my phone. I would never 
actually look at how that stacked up against my budget. And it just wasn't effective or super functional. And I didn't have any financial goals. So I was just sort of swimming around. But at the same time, I was in a job where I was learning a lot about finance in general and investing. And so these were all themes that I was interested in. And I felt I knew a lot about, I just wasn't applying it to my own life. And so around, I would say like 2019, it was summer of 2019, break your budget sort of came to be. And I used it for two reasons. One, as a spending diary to hold myself accountable to actually following the budget that I was setting out and sort of just sharing that journey online. But two, educating people about what I was learning at work, which was investing and how to grow your money long-term. And once I started Break Your Budget, I would say my relationship with my finances changed a lot just because I was using it as a way to hold myself accountable and now people watching and asking me questions. And it was, okay, if I can't answer this question, I need to learn something else so that I can answer the question. Or if somebody's curious about what I'm doing and I don't feel confident in it, I need to figure that out so that I can provide them with that information. So starting Break Your Budget really changed my entire financial situation because now I was sharing what I was doing and people were hearing me. And I would say over the course of 2020, during the pandemic timeframe, I had gotten super serious about my finances. I created my own tool that has been instrumental in totally changing my financial situation. And now I work for myself. So my income has changed dramatically and my goals have changed a lot. And my approach to money has changed a lot. And I feel I have a much more mature and healthy relationship with my finances. So it's been an up and down kind of journey, but I'd say like 2019, instead of it being up and down, it really started to just go. I love that. What a journey. And I love that money has been such a big part of your life forever. It wasn't something you just discovered that you enjoyed in college or after college. Like this has been a part of you since, I don't know, as long as you can remember, really. I have a question for you. When it comes to money, personal finance belief, I'm curious as to where you fall. Are you super restrictive or are you the kind of person who's, no, I'm going to buy my Starbucks and I'm going to feel really good about it. Tell me more about your beliefs around personal finance. Totally. I would say in the past, I was super restrictive and I would create my budget. It was super, super rigid. And my goal was solely to spend as little money as possible. And I found that this created a really unhealthy relationship with my money that has been over time, even as my income has changed and my approach to money has changed. It's been a very difficult thing to break. And I would never recommend approaching finances from such a rigid standpoint, just because once you get into that mindset, it almost becomes addictive. And I think there's a lot of talk around overspending and impulse spending and stuff, but there really isn't a lot of conversation around the opposite. And I feel like people don't look at that as it being an issue, but it is a big problem if you can't live your life because you won't let yourself spend any money. So that was really how I approached finances in my early 20s. Now, I definitely have a much healthier approach to spending my money, but I've really worked on aligning the way that I spend with the things that are important to me. So there are areas of my spending that make me feel my best, that I enjoy spending money on, and I still have a discretionary budget. I'm not just going out and spending a ton of money every single month. I'm thoughtful and intentional about it. But for my discretionary spending on non-essential things, going out to eat and coffee and all that kind of stuff, the majority of it is focused on things that add value to my life. So for me, coffee is one of those areas, but it's not something that I'm super black and white on, right? I've invested in having 
having a nice coffee machine at home. I buy the espresso pods I like. I have my setup at home for my coffee, but I also get coffee out a couple of times a week. Something that's helped me with this because I go through phases with buying coffee out is setting a spending guideline around it. So the last couple of months, and this has helped a lot just in keeping that budget realistic, is I spend money on coffee two times a week, usually on the weekends. It's my Friday, Saturday kind of treat. And because I look at Friday as the first day of the weekend, even though I still work. And then other areas of my spending that I to spend money on are going out to eat with my friends. So going out to eat is a big thing for me. I feel being able to go to a dinner, order whatever you want. Somebody waits on you, cleans up after you. That's a treat. That's a privilege. And when I do that, I want to fully enjoy it. And so I have a healthy budget for going out. And when I do go out to eat, I order what I want. I spend what I want. I get the drink. I get another drink if I want to. I really focus my discretionary spending there. And then another area that I like to focus on is travel in a sense, but things that enable me to travel. So I live in Southern California and we have a lot of great areas to visit driving distance. And so that means maybe sometimes I'm spending more money on gas or I'm spending a little bit more money on eating out because I'm somewhere new or enjoying something. So I approach the way I spend my money differently now in a less restrictive way, but not in a willy-nilly way. I'm really intentional about focusing the money I do have to spend on things that I like instead of spending it on things that other people want me to do or things that don't add any value. Yes, there are a couple of interesting things you said throughout that. One is, it sounds like you do splurge, but you splurge on things that bring you joy and excitement. And then it sounds like you restrict on things that maybe aren't as important to you, which that's a great lesson to take away from this because I feel a lot of people, when they think of spending, Spending, they're just looking at things they think they have to restrict across the board, but that's not true. You just save money on things that you don't care about and you spend a bit more money on things that bring you joy. So I like that lesson. The other thing I'm picking up too is that money is very emotional. Yes. Yes. Has it always been that way for you? And if so, kind of talk us through that. I'm curious about your perspective on money and emotions. Absolutely. So 75% emotion, 25% strategy. And I think if you have your overall approach figured out to your finances, it can really help you control the emotional aspect of any sort of financial decision. But money permeates everything, right? It impacts every area of your life. So it's supernatural for it to be something that's very emotional. You know, you have more money that creates more opportunity. You don't have a lot of money or you feel like you don't have enough money to exist and live the life that you actually want to live. That creates a lot of anxiety and stress around using your money. And that permeates how you show up in every other area of your life. Think about times where maybe you're really stressed or anxious, let's say about work or about a relationship or something. You're not showing up in every other area of your life in the best way that you can. And the same applies for your financial situation. If you're feeling financially insecure, you're not going to be the best version of you at work. You might snap at your partner or at your family or something, or you may not make the best decisions that are in your own best interest because you're so focused on making more money or spending as little money as possible or finding your next job or whatever. So money is obviously very, very emotional. For me, the things that have really helped have been putting myself in control of my financial situation. So earlier we talked about how I used to spend as little money as possible. That was a very reactive approach to my finances. This is the money that I'm earning. And as a defense mechanism, I'm just going to hoard all of it and grasp onto as much as I possibly can. 
I approach my finances more in a proactive way instead of being reactive, meaning I'm playing offense, thinking ahead. Instead of waiting for something to happen to me, I have my emergency fund. I have my baseline budget. I have my financial goals all automated. I have my financial routines. So every week I'm checking in on my finances. Every month I'm pivoting where I need to. So as a result, life happens to you or a decision or an opportunity comes up and you can capitalize on that and take advantage of the opportunity rather than not knowing how it's going to impact you or not feeling confident in that decision-making. And I think the big thing that has really helped me do that was having the right tool that allows me to visualize my finances and really keep track of things in a way that works for me. So that's another tip that I have is if you feel financially out of control, you need to have a tool that you can use that puts you back in the driver's seat of your life and empowers you to make better decisions. And so I'm a spreadsheet person, so I use a spreadsheet, but if spreadsheets don't work for you, there are tons and tons of personal finance apps that you can use to help you put everything in one place and just see what's going on. Yeah, that was great. Thanks for sharing more about the emotions behind money, because I think it's something that a lot of people are aware of. They spend and then they feel guilty or they are stressed. So they go on a shopping spree. You know what I mean? So I think people are aware, but they don't really understand the connection and how it works and whatnot. So I appreciate that. We're going to go in a different direction. Okay. If you're comfortable sharing, what is the biggest personal finance mistake that you have made? And what did you learn from that experience? That's a good question. I feel like I've made a handful of personal finance mistakes. I would say overarching, the biggest mistake that I made was focusing the entirety of my early 20s, not only on spending as little as possible, but thinking that the only solution to financial freedom or feeling secure in my finances was buying property. And I talked about this a lot early on in my break your budget journey because I had had a goal when I turned 25 to purchase real estate in Boston and, you know, the pandemic happened and things kind of all went haywire. And ultimately I've learned over the past couple of years that we are programmed to focus all of our energy. The pinnacle of success in American culture is buying real estate and buying real estate is a really great thing to do depending on your situation, right? It depends where you live. It depends where you want to live. It depends how much money you have. It depends on the area's affordability. It depends on the housing market. It depends on the economy. There are so many external factors that are out of your control that sort of dictate if it's the right decision for you at the period of time that you are interested in it and into the future. And I didn't realize that. And so I closed myself off to a lot of different opportunities and a lot of different experiences in the name of saving as much money as possible to make that decision only to get to a point where I was ready to make that decision and decide not to do it. And the decision that I made after that was to move to Los Angeles. And when I moved to California, that's when my life started. That's when I feel everything sort of changed and fell into place for me in terms of finding happiness in my day-to-day, -day, being able to build my business to actually be something that can support me full-time in 
exponentially grow my income and just be more confident in myself. And I look back, if I had gone through with that, I would have been anchored somewhere too early in my life for what I was ready for. And I missed out on so many things in the name of just having such a narrow focus on something that I didn't take the time to educate myself on. And I say that because I think a lot of young people think that buying real estate is their ticket to financial success and that renting is throwing money away. And I just want to dispel that because renting is normal and there's always going to be a sunk cost to living. Even when you own property, you still have to pay property taxes. Sometimes you have to pay HOA, you have to pay home insurance. There are still sunk costs to that decision that people don't consider. And really just boils down to your life situation and what you want and where you want to live. And that I think was my biggest mistake was not learning enough about that to make an empowered decision and then sacrificing my early twenties, which I'll never get that time back on a decision that didn't even end up coming to be. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so glad you brought that up because I think our parents' generation is all about buying property, right? That is the pinnacle of success. And it's strongly encouraged that we all buy a house, but you're right. It doesn't always make sense depending on your situation. And there are so many costs with owning a home that you don't worry about until you own a home. (laughs) And that's not to say that buying a house is a bad decision. It's just not always the right decision for everyone a hundred percent of the time. And that's what we're told is you need to go buy property. I look at my life. If I bought It would cost 3X for me to buy property in Los Angeles right now than it would for me to just go rent a nicer apartment. I'd have to downgrade my lifestyle. I'd have to pay more money for a mortgage and taxes and everything when, how do I even know this is what I want? When you know what you want, when you're settled, maybe when you are getting married or you're establishing your life somewhere, that's when you want to buy property. But if you're still figuring it out and you live in a high cost of living area, I think let's normalize paying rent justice for renting is really my motto. Yeah. No, I like that one. That's a good one. So most of my audience consists of entrepreneurs who may be really great at managing millions of dollars for their business, but they often feel lost when it comes to their own personal finances. Actually, this is exactly how I felt when I first worked with you a few years back. I was embarrassed to admit that and to come to you and be like, hey, I'm really great at managing my business finances, but when my personal finances come up, I almost ignore them because I don't know what's going on and I don't want to know what's going on. But it was getting to the point where that was no longer acceptable. So I worked with you and I really got a handle on my personal finances, but can you share a few tips to getting started with personal finance for a founder who is just totally lost? Absolutely. And to validate how you feel, even myself as someone who's very well-versed in personal finances, ever since I left my nine to five job and have been paying myself, my relationship and confidence, I would say in managing my own money has shifted a lot, not necessarily in a positive direction, just because it is a very intimidating thing to do. And it can be hard to be the sole decision maker. This is how much money I'm making in my business. What's the right amount? to pay myself? Am I confident in that decision? And what if I don't make money next month? What do I do? I get it. And I totally empathize with feeling that way because I'm obviously very financially educated and it's still something that I struggle with a lot. A couple of things that have really helped me was establishing a specific payday routine. So 
By nature of the way that my business specifically is set up, I am required to pay myself payroll. And so I allocate every year a salary to myself, which hopefully I can maintain going into the future. But I pay myself a salary every year. And so I do get paid biweekly. So that sort of mimics, I guess, the corporate salary, but that doesn't give me the same security, I guess, of a corporate salary because it's still my money. But I've established a payday routine. So Regardless of if you pay yourself a salary, choosing maybe every other Friday or once a month where you sit down and you're paying yourself and you're going through, okay, I pay myself X dollars. I'm setting aside X dollars to go for my essential bills. I'm setting aside X dollars for my budget for my non-essential stuff. And I'm putting X amount of dollars towards my various financial goals. Just going through the act of sitting down and doing that and taking, I think when you run your own business, it takes a little bit longer than if you are a corporate employee. So I do half an hour every other Friday where I'm sitting down and doing that. It's not always my favorite thing to do, but it's helped a lot just from an organization standpoint, but also a mental standpoint. So that would be my first tip. My second tip would be to make sure you have the right accounts set up because that's another layer that's really challenging is when you have your own business and you're thinking about longer term financial goals. So retirement planning and things like that. The types of accounts that you can have vary depending on how your business is structured, how you pay yourself, the legalities around whether you're an LLC or an S-corp or what your income is and what you can give to yourself as an employee versus as an employer. It's just very confusing. So retirement planning, whether you are employed by a corporation or employed by yourself is non-negotiable. It's something you have to do. So dedicating time to sit down with a professional, whether that be your CPA or a financial advisor, you don't have to work with them full time, but sitting down and getting that advice on the right accounts to set up is integral. And then setting your contribution to be either automatic or incorporating it into your payday routine is huge because using myself as the example, last year, my business changed a lot and I had the wrong retirement account set up and the administration and headache that that caused. And, you know, I'm going to pay a penalty on my taxes this year. I lost a little bit of money. It was an expensive mistake and I learned a lot and I'm all set up now, but I didn't invest in the right advice from the beginning. And it cost me more than if I had just paid the money to do that. And so I think that's a big thing when you are self-employed is to just make sure you have the right accounts set up and to not cheap out on financial services or accounting for your business, because that is honestly the most important investment you can make because you pay way more money for the mistakes than you would if you just paid the money for the correct setup and the correct advice from the get-go. I think those are my two biggest tips for taking control of your personal finances as a business owner. But again, it's so situational as well. Actually, I have one more tip and it's creating a, what I call a hill and valley fund. And it is essentially an emergency fund for your business. And the reason why I say that is because if you have a low month, you can pull money from that and use it to pay yourself or to pay your bills instead of feeling stressed and having to take on business that you may not have taken on otherwise or not be able to pay yourself any money. Having that little bit of business emergency fund can have a major impact on your personal finances and just the stability in your business from a financial standpoint. What's so funny is I think you talked about this in Mel's Mastermind and the next day Mm -hmm. I set up a hill and valley fund. 
It's so important. It's so important. For mine, I actually use my tax savings as my Hill and Valley fund because I always save more money for taxes than I know I'm going to need to pay just in case sometimes you get the surprise. But basically, I have that money set aside. And even this year, I have a whole bunch of money in that account. I'm probably, God willing, not going to owe any money for taxes. Like I think I've paid everything or I won't owe. I definitely won't owe as much money as I have in that account. And so I'm using that as sort of my, okay, if I have a slower month or if I have to spend a month focusing on back-end business stuff and maybe don't have as much time for outbound or lead generation and things like that, it takes the pressure off. And that I think is really important for continuing to generate revenue in your business to avoid that problem entirely, having the financial cushion. Yeah, absolutely. We went through a really slow month in January as we do every single year. And I was just able to pull money from my Hill and Valley and people still got raises. People got paid. I got paid. You know what I mean? We were all good. And it's because I had that Hill and Valley fund set up. And without that, I would have had to make some really tough financial decisions in the business. So if you don't have a Hill and Valley fund, now is your time. This is your sign to go and set one up today. And And on your point of the slow month, I think being financially aware in your business of the seasonality is really important. So you can prepare for that. For you, January is a slow month. For me, January is a huge month because people are focused on their finances. But my slow time is in the summer because people are spending money, they're on vacation, maybe have time off work. They're not focused on their budget in the same way as they are in the beginning and at the end of the year. So knowing the seasonality of your business and when to expect those fluctuations is also a key driver behind finding the financial stability in your revenue. And then ultimately that translates into your personal income. Yeah, absolutely. Ooh, all great stuff here. Ooh, something I want to touch on. What are you reading or listening to to further your knowledge on personal finance? Okay, love this. I have a couple of recs and then I have another fun, important rec that we're going to talk about. I am a huge advocate for daily financial reading and education and consumption. So that could be reading about personal finance every morning, listening to personal finance podcasts every morning, or if you're a business owner, listening to business-oriented podcast. So I have a couple of recs that I've lately have been really into. One is I do all of my reading that's not books on Medium, which is like sort of an op-ed platform for people to share their opinions. The reason I really like Medium, it costs like $5 a month. It shares different financial perspectives. And I think hearing other perspectives is really important for learning your own approach to your finances. Because you can read about what somebody else does. You can read about their money habits or their money tips or their lessons they learned. And then take that information and apply it to your own life in whatever way works for you. So every morning, I always read one article on Medium. I set the time. And then I also have a couple of personal finance books that I like. I really like I Will Teach You To Be Rich. That's kind of my go-to personal finance book. And then from a podcast standpoint, I have my own podcast. I think you guys should go listen to it. But I also really like the CoCast, which is by Dan Co. I will preface, it's a little bit broy but it's good business branding revenue advice on how to really monetize a lot of different areas. 
your business obviously is monetizable, but also side hustle things or areas of your life, different skill sets, expanding those skill sets and branding and things like that. And I really like the Money with Katie show. I think she does a really good job of breaking down complex situations. I think her superpower is her ability to digest information and then regurgitate it in a way that's very insightful. She does a lot of research and then gathers those insights and presents them very well in a thought-provoking way. Which again, when it comes to some personal finance topics is a hard thing to do. She recently did a post and I think it was a podcast. I haven't listened to it yet on lifestyle creep and how much lifestyle creep is appropriate. Is it ever okay? And the way that she broke it down, I thought was really useful. And ultimately the answer to that question is yes. It is okay if you're intentional about it and there's no problem with reaping the rewards of the hard work that you've done in the way that makes sense for you. So in her instance, it was like grading their living situation and how, you know, that's had a ripple effect in her life. So I think those are really great resources. Another great resource is my book that's coming out. It's called Own Your Money. The pre-sale link is live. So we'll make sure that's all linked below, but Own Your Money is my book sharing my journey and my advice for you to budget better, earn more and reach your six figure savings goals. So if you are a business owner, there's lots of good advice in there for you. If you are new on your personal finance journey or in general on a personal finance journey, which everybody is at some point in their life, this book is for you. So you should read it. Lots of tactical tips. It's going to be coming out in June, but pre-order it now. Yay. All really good resources. (laughs) And I love the shameless plug about your book. We're going to talk about it. Don't worry. I love money with Katie. I actually had Katie on my podcast about a year ago, right around Ooh, the time. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. After this. Katie and I have been connected for a little bit now. She actually yeah. wrote a blog about me and my business probably a year and a half or two years ago. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we've been kind of like going back and forth and whatnot for a while now, but I really love her. It's been I fun watching her journey. the one who introduced me to her. I want to say, I, probably I, remember, did. I remember I first learned of her like summer of 2020, which is when we were working together. She had those whiteboard videos that she yeah. would do. She would like write on the whiteboards and stuff. Yeah. It's crazy to see how far she's come. I feel like she's really popped off. I know it's been fun watching her journey and your journey too. I mean, you've really blown up in the last couple of years. And the other resource you mentioned that I like is I Will Teach You to Be Rich. Amazing book. If you're on a personal finance journey, he does a great way of explaining things. Even if you don't understand personal finance, like you will understand it reading the book. So I really like him. The book I want to plug as well, it's actually sitting on my desk, is We Should All Be Millionaires. If you're a business owner- It's a good, have you read this one? No. (gasps) Okay. I'm adding that to my list. I'm going to write it down right now. Yeah. Write it down, take a picture, do whatever you have to do. But this one, I'm actually probably going to reread this one because it's, yeah, it's good. So yeah, that's a good one. But I really like how personal finance is having a moment right now. I feel like five years ago, personal finance was for 50 year old white men. And like now it feels like such a normal topic of conversation. I talk to my girlfriends about personal finance. I listen to podcasts on it. I read books on it. Like it's just so normal. And I'm so happy that it's just a part of my daily conversation. And it seems like a lot of people are talking about it right now. It's about time, honestly. I feel like it took a global pandemic and a recession and noise about a potential upcoming recession and lots of inflation and stuff for people to finally care. So I'm very excited that it is sort of getting the attention it deserves just because I think there's sort of a generation, I would say the millennial generation. So people that are 30 to 35 at this point. So the age before social media was part of our 
day to day and like an integral part of our day. I feel like that subset of people got the short end of the stick on a lot of things. They got a bad job market when they entered into the real world. And then they got a lack of financial education and they're paying the price for it now. And there's always time to catch up, right? But I feel because of that, younger generations are now starting to pay more attention. And there's been a lot of talk that I see, at least on the side of TikTok that I'm on about increasing your income and starting your own business and sort of ditching the nine to five culture that has just been forced on us. People are realizing that you're not constrained to that if you don't want to be. And that's not to demonize a nine to five. There are so many benefits of it. I have a whole podcast on the benefits of a nine to five, but I just think that people are starting to realize that if that's not the right path for you, you don't have to take it anymore. And I think it's amazing. I think that Gen Z will be in a much better financial place than millennials are only because of social media and just having this realization that you don't need to work a nine to five. You don't need to go to college. You don't need to take on hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of debt to be successful. So yeah, I do think that Gen Z has a very bright future when it comes to finance. And I think millennials will, I think we'll catch up, but it's going to take mm -hmm. some time to get for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So you already plugged your book, which if you didn't do it, I was going to do it. <laughs> and I'm really excited about this. Can you tell us a bit more about the process of writing yes. a book, right? Because there's people in my audience who want to go down that path, but there's, you can self-publish, right? You can go through a publishing house and there's proposal letters, right? Can you just break down what this looks like for someone who's just getting started on their journey? Absolutely. So I worked with a publisher and I think my situation, I guess, was sort of unique in the sense that they approached me before I had ever really thought about writing a book. So I was already sort of at an advantage there of, I didn't need to write a proposal and shop it around. It was kind of, hey, Michaela, have you ever thought about writing a book? Like, I remember I got an email that was break your budget book, dot, 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 question mark. And I was like, I'm ignoring this. And then he followed up a couple of days later and I was like, okay, I guess I'll, I'll think about it. It was just not something I ever considered or thought about it was something that I could do. You know, you think about writing a book, it feels like such an abstract thing that only super expert, smart, successful business people do or celebrities or whatever. It wasn't something that I considered myself capable of doing at the time. And so I had agreed with this publisher that I was going to write a proposal and I took some time and I did that. And essentially the proposal was a little bit of a mission statement or the goal of the book. What are you hoping to accomplish? And then a breakdown of the structure. What are the things you're going to talk about? Who's the audience demographic? What's your demographic? Who's targeted towards all those kinds of things. So I learned a lot in that process. My mom actually has a friend who is a novelist. And so I sat down with her and was like, how do I do this. Like, I have no idea what to do. And she helped me a little bit with that. And, you know, I submitted the proposal a couple of weeks later, they got back to me and was like, we've accepted your proposal. Let's get this show on the road kind of thing. And that's really when it was like, okay, how am I going to do this? So I'm a structure person. And essentially they gave me a deadline, which is generally what happens once you agree to work with a publisher is, you know, they obviously have a published date and they work backwards from there. So the goal was for us to publish summer, spring, summer of 2023. So 
June 20th is my pub date and we are on target. So we worked backwards from there. So usually it takes about four to six months for the book to actually get printed and sent from China to the US. It's a long process. So in order to reach that deadline, you have to work backwards. So my manuscript was actually due in September. I submitted it, I think September 1st. So I had about six months to write the book. So basically I wrote a chapter every two weeks and I structured it in a way that made sense for me. So my book is very tactical. It's very, it doesn't read like a novel. It reads like a guide almost. So it's like I share in the beginning of every chapter, a little bit of my own personal story and experience and anecdotes about how I navigated that chapter. So like budgeting, saving, investing, increasing your income, side hustles, my career transitions, things like that. And then within each chapter after that intro part, it gets into more tactical tips and advice. So how to structure your budget, different types of budgets, tips and tricks to make it more optimal, how to automate things, how to create a money map, like things like that is sort of the bulk of the book. And then there are illustrations and some charts and graphs to help make it more fun and less overwhelming because a lot of personal finance books are very text heavy and very hard to get through. And I didn't want my book to be like that. I wanted it to be a little bit more approachable to all age ranges, obviously, but personal finance books are boring, plain and simple. Even I will teach you to be rich, an amazing resource and book. It was a slog for me to get through that book. A lot of people can agree. They just don't want to say it out loud. So my book is sort of a little bit different than that, but But getting back to the process, you know, you submit your manuscript and then you spend about three months going through editing, proofreading, formatting, and framing up the book. So if you submit your manuscript in a Word document, it then has to get put into a book. All the text has to fit. It has to flow, especially if you have any type of illustrations or charts or any supplemental information. Formatting the book is a challenge. And a lot of times what will happen is your publisher will will give you like a target page range and they'll break that down into words. So my book was 35,000 words or something, which isn't super long. It'll end up being, it's like 170 pages. And to get it into the frame, They map everything out and then there's blank space. And it's like, okay, well, so there's two blank pages in this chapter. There's half a blank page in this chapter. We got to fill that up. So then you have to write a little bit more. So we added in sidebars and comments and pop-outs and things like that, or just, again, additional information, end of chapter roundups. Submitting the manuscript, there's still work to be done after the fact, which I think a lot of people don't think about. And then now we're pivoting into... PR and marketing and really getting the word out about the book. So that means that I'm working with the PR team at the company. They're going to start pitching me to different publications. I mean, you know all about the PR. My mom works in PR, so she's helping me put together my own personal pitch to pitch out to alumni networks. And I have my own social media strategy I'm trying to do. I'm waiting on a dummy copy of the book so I can start incorporating it into all of my videos. There's a lot that goes into the book after you think the book is done. We had to go through cover art, illustration, processes, design, all of that is a big thing because the cover is the most important choice you're going to make. And it's hard to land on what do I like? What do I not like? What do I want this to look like? Does it align with the branding that I have? Does it pop on the shelf? Are the colors right? Is the text right? There's a lot of decisions that have to be made. And I think throughout this first process, I've learned a lot. I'm actually starting to write a second book that's going to come out next summer that will sort of pair 
with this first book with a different publisher, but just a similar sort of process. And I learned so much in this first round that I'm like, okay, my second book is going to pop off because I learned so much writing my first book, things that worked, didn't work, things I like, things I don't like, things to say ahead of. So all that to say, writing a book is an enormous undertaking. It's a really big process and it's probably the most gratifying thing that I've done. I'm so excited to see it come to life, but it's also terrifying because are people going to buy it? How is it going to be received? You put all this time and energy into something. It's not huge money maker. You know, I didn't write a book to make money. It's more of a positioning situation where you write a book to position you as an expert in a certain field or to open up other opportunities. So you're working for free basically and devoting all this time and energy to something with, and you have no idea what the ROI will be. So it's also a very scary commitment to make, but I think it will pay off hopefully. It will. This will open up the door for a lot of speaking opportunities. And yeah, I know it'll be great for you, but I think that's something a lot of people don't realize is that Mm -hmm. one, it's like a full-time job writing a book. And two, you don't make millions of dollars from the book itself. No, it's not the book that makes money. I mean, I'll make a royalty off of it. And they did pay me in advance. And this was a conversation I had had with the publisher at the beginning. I was like, you're going to pay me in advance. I can make two times that money on a single brand deal. Like, why would I do this? And he was, well, you have to think beyond just the initial payment. Think about all of the opportunity having a book can open up for you and for your business. So yes, speaking engagements, more publicity, your book sitting in Barnes and Noble, anybody who picks the book up, people go in there all the time. There's just so many other things that a book can do for you. And, you know, personal accomplishment, you have a real tangible thing that you did that is representative of you. And that was something I learned too. If you're going to work with a publisher, you have to find one that will work with you and that will prioritize your needs above theirs because the book has your name on it. And so that was a challenge that I ran into where I really had to put my foot down on a lot of things where I'm, this is my name. This is my book. This is my business. This is my brand. It has to be what I want. I have to be happy with it. And if I'm not happy with it, we both lose. And finding the right publisher that is cool with that is hard. It's a hard thing because a lot of publishers have their own style or they have their own agenda or they have systems that have worked in the past that they're not open to adjusting. And that's all stuff that when you're in the contract process, you really want to make sure you have it laid out. I have in my upcoming contract with my new book, a lot of lessons I learned, I was like, I'm not signing this until I know that X, Y, and Z are a hundred percent in my control. Yeah. Those are, say that is kind of like the big thing. Like if you have a specific vision about how you want the book to look, if you feel very strongly about being the sole decision maker on cover and things like that, you've got to get it in writing. Wow. That's a good piece of advice. Don't just blindly sign off on contracts. Make sure you know what you're getting into and don't be afraid to advocate for yourself. So I like Mm -hmm. that you brought that up because I feel like for me personally, if I had a book deal sitting in front of me, I'm absolutely like, let's go baby. But taking a second to really think through what you're signing off on and what you're getting into can make a world of difference in your book publishing experience. So thank you for sharing that. Because again, that's something that I'd probably be so dang excited. I wouldn't think twice about, but now I'm going to because of you. Yeah. And also nobody teaches you, is this a good deal? Am I getting ripped off? I have no idea, especially if you never wrote a book before. It's kind of one of those things that you learn by doing. I mean, I didn't have any life or death issues, you know, was we got to a point where we were all on the same page, but I had to fight for it. It wasn't, if I didn't stick up for myself, my book would not have turned out the way I wanted. And a lot of people are afraid to do that. 
Um, but at the end of the day, you have to remember it's your intellectual property, it's your business, it's your brand, it's your name on the cover of the books. You need to make sure it's what you want. And not every publisher, I'm not saying my publisher wasn't supportive of me, but not every publisher out there has your best interest in mind. They have theirs. And that's, I think, an issue a lot of people run into after the fact. Yeah, which makes sense because a publishing house is a business and they have to make money. So of course they're looking out for themselves. I totally get that. Okay. This has been such an enlightening conversation, not only about personal finance, but learning about the book process as well. Can you tell us a bit more about where everybody can find you and where people can buy the book, all the things? Yes. So you can find me on all social media. My handle across the board is at break your budget on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, Twitter, But you can also find my website is breakyourbudget.com. There will be an entire section dedicated to my book if you want to learn more. I'll also make sure I send you the pre-order link on Amazon so that you can pre-order the book if you would like. And that is all my stuff. Just at Break Your Budget. Perfect. I love it. Also, my birthday is on June 19th. And with that coming out on June 20th, I'm going to need a signed copy on my birthday. Oh, yeah. You'll be getting a copy for my birthday. I think we can arrange. Okay, perfect. Yeah, have your people call my people and they'll look up. Yeah. Amazing. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking some time to chat with me. I really appreciate you. And I know my audience is going to love this one. Of course. Thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Served Me. I hope you enjoyed listening and found some tasty nuggets of marketing wisdom to help you take your brand to the next level. Remember, just like a perfectly crafted cocktail, marketing is all about finding the right balance and serving it up with a splash of creativity. So keep building, keep refining, and keep serving up your brand with style. And if you're thirsty for more insights, be sure to subscribe and join us for our next episode of Served Neat. Until then, cheers. Cheers.